I think I think I might have felt an internal twinge in my heart. <laughs> wow. A cold dead that is heart. Something. Let's talk about it. Let's draw it out. Let's fan <laughs> it into flame. Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Welcome everyone to this episode of Scattered. Today we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3 verses 20 to the end of chapter 4. So there's quite a lot to cover. Paul is writing to a church in Colossae that he's never met, but he's had a report from Epaphras that some false teaching has influenced the church. So he's writing to remind them of the truth that uh, Jesus Christ is the Lord over all creation, that Christ has secured uh, redemption for his people and has enabled us to participate with him in his death and in his resurrection. So we saw over the last past couple of weeks the impact that has on our lives, on the church, and in marriages. And this week we're going to look at the impact it has for children and parents, for slaves and masters, and what we might learn from that, uh, followed by his requests for prayer and his greetings and instructions. So let's begin by seeing what he has to say to children and parents. Well, he addresses children first. So obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. And then fathers or parents. Um, my translation says fathers, but it says it can be parents. Do not embitter your children. Or I think, does the ESV say anger your children? Provoke, mine says. Provoke your children or they will become discouraged. So, yeah, there's like these two sides to parenting and being parented, isn't there? And how long does the children bit apply for? Are we always children? The articles that I read about this, because that was my question as well, uh, they said, or the commentary said that this is referring to children, primarily to children when they're still in their parents' household and under their authority. But when a child is grown and out of their parents' household, they're no longer under this, this same obligation of obedience, but the obligation of the fifth commandment to honour your father and mother still remain. Yeah, because I guess as well, like when you get married, it's a it's a more obvious, like, come, you know, as a wife coming under the authority of your husband. But then if you don't get married, I guess it's a bit more hazy, isn't it? Like whose mm. authority are you under? I mean, do you need to be under some authority? I guess you're still under God, aren't you? Like we've said before, there's this umbrella authority that all these people come under. Um, but then, yeah, I guess if you're single, how does that work? Because I, I was thinking last week when it talks about wives, submit yourself to your husband. Um, some people have taken that as like women generally should submit to men in the church. And I don't think that's right. I don't know what you think about that. I think there's a sense in which you, we all do, don't we, submit to the authority within the church of the pastor. Mm. But that would that's equally on men as it is on women, isn't it? To submit to authority, the right authorities within the world or within the church. But yeah, I, I don't think Paul jumps every single woman's father in church if that's what you mean i think that the bible is very clear on the issue of male headship and authority in um the church and the family for a start 
I don't think that it speaks to uh, male headship outside of the, that framework. So I would say outside of church, um, I am not commanded to submit to men outside of the church eldership and the minister. Um, uh, yeah, and I am not commanded to be uh, to submit to other people's husbands. Mm. I and think it the works Bible is very to... clear on church and family, but not clear outside of that. Mm. And it works both ways again, doesn't it? Last week we were saying that actually if a husband loves his wife well, then it is easier for a wife to submit to her husband. Um, and I guess it's the same here. If fathers or pa- if parents are working to not embitter their children or provoke their children and discourage their children, then it will be easier for the children to obey your parents. Um, It's harder, isn't it, though, when a parent um, is not doing that or you feel like your parent isn't doing that um, as you grow up. Um, And it's at that point that you have to then put yourself under God's authority and be like, well, my parents are encouraging me to do this, but in the Bible it says I shouldn't, so I'm going to do this other thing. It's interesting in my home Mm. at the minute because I've got – three teenage boys and we're at a position where they at times would try to respectfully say it's hard for me to obey you right now mummy or daddy or mum or dad because you're provoking you know that they would (laughs) at times particular ones especially reference this passage to say (laughs) you, you you know in a really helpful way to challenge us and say you're making obedience really hard right now because you're teasing us or you're winding us up or you're, um, mm. and that's just really, it's, it's, I find that helpful to be in a position where they're free to say that. And that's a good rebuke to our hearts when we are making it harder than we need to for them. Yeah. It's mm. really helpful, isn't it? That everybody is being held to a standard Like you can't hold people to account if you haven't set the standard. And it's not just wives here, it's husband. This is supposed to be the standard of your love for your wife. It's not just children here, it's parents, which is frightening. All of us are parents in this group. This is supposed to be your standard. So it's not just, okay, you have to submit and that's the end of it. It's actually the ones you're submitting to also have to hold this incredibly high standard. It's worth noting in verse 20 that it says, Uh, children obey for this pleases the Lord and I think ultimately our kids like moving them on from because children are people pleasers aren't they generally um like we are too as adults but I feel like it's shifting them beyond us and being like this is not all about me this is about you learning to submit yourself to God and to follow God and obey God like it's a bigger kind of picture isn't it than them just obeying everything that we say it's not like a power play for us it's actually a pointing to God and his goodness and his authority and the fact that he can see the bigger picture of our lives and we often can see the bigger picture of our kids life like you know playing on computer games five hours a day is actually really bad for your brain so you know things like that where you just have to stamp your authority you're teaching them eventually to to obey God. It's a beautiful picture of this mutual dependence within a family um, that the strong the strong, or the people in the position of authority, the parents need to 
be motivated and mastered by um, a dependence on God and his love to care for those uh, who are under their care and also for children that they need to also be motivated by love because we're all self-willed and want to um, seek our own interests but through love you can then obey your parents and so I feel like it's you know we really need to be dwelling in Christ for this mutual uh, mm. dependence to happen and and that's a mutual dependence that actually is reflected in in the godhead isn't it you know the the first person of the trinity is the father and the second person of the trinity is the son and and there is that relationship of authority and submission equality i don't we wouldn't say that either you know we wouldn't say that jesus is any less um god than uh, god the father but there is that idea of authority and submission. And so when we're, we're, it's in the very nature of God. And so when we're exercising that, we're reflecting the beauty of the Trinity, even if we don't understand it. Um, but that beauty is there and it, and it should permeate all parts of our lives, isn't it? And so when we don't, um, like we said last week, you know, when we, when we don't, exercise biblical authority or when we don't submit to biblical authority it's not just um i mean it, it's effectively it's sin we're rebelling against the very nature of god because that relationship that submission authority relationship is within the godhead itself yeah it's such a challenge isn't it for us as parents to look at the interests of our children rather than you know seek their obedience so that we can look mm. good to others or yeah. Mm. So let's um, have a look at the next two relationships. What does Paul uh, ask the slaves and the slave owners to to do? I was really struck in the section that? by the amount of times that the Lord is referenced, and so whilst the slaves are being instructed by Paul to work hard to do a really good job, always that's because of the Lord and because ultimately they're under the authority of the Lord. And yeah, one, two, three, four, f yeah, four times in these couple of verses, I just think there's such a strong emphasis that slaves are ultimately um, captive to Jesus and not to their masters. And yeah, I find that really helpful in thinking about for all of us, if we are captivated by Jesus and under his lordship it changes all our other relationships doesn't it that's really helpful isn't it that that um Jesus is mentioned so many times because that's the encouragement and you know you're not I think we need to be aware don't we that I would say a lot of the time masters of slaves were not kind but even if they were kind you know, the social structures existing so that slavery exists are biased towards certain people groups. It's, you know, it's ethnocentric towards certain people. You know, if we talk about America, for example, you know, a lot of masters, some masters may not have been cruel to their slaves, but the very fact that they, that slavery existed showed in the, in the way that it existed showed that. 
actually priority was given to white people and not black people. And, and so, you know, it's so helpful, isn't it, to know that actually in no matter what situation you're in, God is saying you may be in this awful situation, whether it's slavery or whatever, um, but actually you're not working for this horrible person that's in charge of you. You're working for the Lord. And the reminder that um, in verse 24, it says, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And it just, this verse really struck me because I thought actually bond servants and slaves weren't supposed to inherit anything. I think by law, they weren't allowed to. So what inheritance is he talking about? He's clearly talking about heaven, about the life to come. You know, so actually, do whatever you do, where, whatever situation you're in, work heartily as for the Lord and not for this person who has authority over you, knowing that from the Lord you will receive eternity in heaven as your reward. I think one of the things I read that really helped me think about this and apply it to myself is once we see that we've been captured by Jesus, that um, and the, the sort of cultivating in our hearts the right fear of the Lord, that does free us, doesn't it, from all the lesser fears that would bind us in really bad ways. And so I just think, yeah, th this is a really stark example, isn't it? Because these guys that Paul was talking to were actually slaves and so had so little freedom in a worldly sense. And yet, ultimately, if they were living to fear the Lord, that did bring a freedom from all the other fears of their master or of consequences or of where they were going to end up. Because like Helen said, they are promised an inheritance, aren't they, that will never perish or fade. Um, and that does bring freedom, I think, from all the other fears that would um, capture us. I struggled a bit, though, that, <laughs> that Paul, when he's talking to the slaves, I think, it, you know, the, the slaves are the ones that don't have the power, but the, the masters do. And it is hard, isn't it, that he's not like, free your slaves or, you know, treat them equally and make sure that, that you know, they have their rights and things like that. Instead, there's kind of this element of, you know, be right and fair to them. But I guess in you've got to see the bigger picture in the Bible, haven't you? That actually the abolition of slavery in the UK did come from a Christian who was doing it on Christian principles. And I guess it, I was talking to Dave about it and, I, and Dave was saying that maybe it's not always the right time to cause social upheaval. Um, you know, maybe Paul in writing this letter didn't think that, you know, this this fledgling church and with such a fledgling faith um, at this point should be upturning society in such a massive and upsetting way when, you know, maybe he could foresee that further down the line, if everyone did love well and obey God's commands, that slavery would naturally be seen as something that wasn't acceptable. I think it's important to remember also that the slavery at the time in the Roman world was quite different to the racial slavery that was in America and in uh, Europe. Um, and that actually, um, in a census, I think it was a third of the population was were slaves and they were slaves in all different sectors of life there were doctors who were slaves there were uh, there's still oppression and still 
unfairly treated slaves. He does call the masters, doesn't he, to, at that time, a radical, you're under authority too, masters, you're not the bosses. And I just thought that was fascinating with the whole, what we've heard before in Colossians, that there's been such Mm. a big push from Paul, hasn't there, that we're all submitting to the same Lord and Jesus is enough for all of us. And so actually, whilst your positions are different, you're both submitting to the Lord and that there's no difference there. You know, there's a unity there. And within the churches, there would have been masters and slaves, wouldn't there, worshipping together Jesus. And so I just thought that actually it doesn't seem radical to us, but to to transfer the possession sort of thought of a slave to a brother, which we see more of in um, Philemon, is is radical, isn't it, at the time? I also think that, I agree with you, Juliet, mm. that I know that slavery was different in those days, but I would argue that there's still a slight, there's still dehumanization. You know, like these slaves weren't allowed some basic human rights, even though slavery often pulled them out of terrible situations they were still dehumanized in some ways. And I think that's what struck me about um, the ESV translation says, uh, treat your bondservants, in verse uh, one of chapter four, masters treat your bondservants justly and fairly. I think that's very different, isn't it, from saying, you know, treat your slaves nicely, because you can be nice to your dog. A dog. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, you can be nice, well, you can be nice to a cat, but but you're only just and fair to human beings. And so although it doesn't call for revolution, you know, it doesn't call for abolition, I do think that Paul here is sowing the seeds. He's saying, mm. look, masters, these bond servants are human beings. <laughs> um, you need to treat them su- as such. They're human beings and equal to you in the sight of God. And that is the beginning of the dismantling. I do feel that it is sowing seeds um, and that Paul mm. does see the unjustness of the slavery system, even if he doesn't call for the end of it. And I found it very, very encouraging that he even gave hope to slaves that they had this inheritance to look forward to and they had they no longer le- needed to live in fear of their masters or you know ha- have that um yeah needing to serve them out of fear but out of, actually out of a different kind of uh way of service and i think it's really helpful that even in our worst situations that we can experience now that we can be freed from from bondage to fear. There's a sense in which this good news of Christ, um, us dying with him and living with him, means that we no longer need to have the same, uh, be under the same bondage as before. But it doesn't mean that <laughs> we shouldn't fight for, yeah, justice and fighting to... Uh, escape different oppressive situations. Um, I think, as Helen said, what he says to the slave masters is sowing seeds for that sort of freedom to be made possible. Let's have a look at chapter 4, verses uh, 3 to 4. Um, 
what here does Paul ask for for prayer for? I guess he's asking the Colossians to pray that um, God would open doors for him to be able to talk about Jesus more. Yeah, I found it remarkable that he doesn't say, ask them to pray for his release. Yeah, I think that's, the, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Because in verse three, he says, pray for us to open the door. And then towards the end of the <laughs> verse, he says, on account of which I am in prison. So I'm already in prison for this thing. The likelihood is that other people will end up in prison for this thing. But can you pray that this thing can continue, please? I find it interesting as well that he, he asks them to pray for that because I'm sure he's praying that himself. But there's a real sense, isn't there, in this letter of the partnership between Paul and the church in Colossae, even though he's never been there. And so he's really, he covets and he really desires their prayers it's not like he's like, oh, I've got this covered. I can pray for this myself. But there's a sense in which he really values their partnership in those prayers. What does Paul then encourage them to go on and do? It's an outlooking as well here, isn't it? So um, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. I was encouraged by this um, because often... I find in Paul's letters that often he's talking about relationships with people within the church, but here it's like, and be outward looking as well. Um, kind of the way that you act towards outsiders makes a difference and it can become an opportunity to share with them and proclaim to them the good news. Um, like let your conversation be full of grace seasoned with salt um, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So yeah, that's a challenge, isn't it, in our workplaces and in our friendship circles, especially friendships with people who aren't Christians. Like, how does the way that we speak and act uh, impact them? It was interesting. One of the things I read really helped me because it was saying this comes, doesn't it, after all these instructions about how we live. And so actually, I think the Paul sees that if we're living differently in all our other relationships, then that often leads us to conversations about why that is. And so actually this doesn't come before all the instructions about how our households should run and how our church should be, but this comes after all those things um, in a sense that I guess, yeah, when, when we are living differently and distinctively, people then do have questions, don't they? And we do need to answer about why we're different. I mean, we've talked about it in the past a little bit, but, um, you know, he does tell the church, doesn't he, to continue start steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This idea that um, the steadfastness in prayer, I don't know I about anyone else, but I'm quite up and down with my prayer. Um, I, this idea of steadfastness, you know, like earnestly, steadfastly, greatly, um, steadily applied prayer just every day just faithfully praying but um the thing that really made me take notice was that with thanksgiving I think we talked about it at the beginning of the letter because he talks about thanksgiving at the beginning but this idea of um thanksgiving in prayer always so that your prayers don't just become a long list of demands and you don't get angry when you think that your prayers aren't being answered. You know, this idea of <coughs> thankfulness um, 
yeah, I just think when I'm praying in a way that is doesn't include thankfulness, my heart becomes embittered. Even though I'm praying, my heart becomes embittered. Why aren't you doing what I want you to do? Why isn't this prayer answered? When actually when you sit there and you go through what you're thankful for, you realize how much God has already given you without you even asking. I think that's really helpful. And it's also helpful then. I think Paul then goes on to share uh, how he's thankful for the different people that have blessed him, that have partnered with him. So in verses 7 to 17, he lists a long list of um, different people that he's had relationships with. What can we learn from these different relationships or what he gives thanks for? The first thing that struck me is he's got a big heart for people, hasn't he? Because there's a long list here. There's a similar one in Romans. There's just a lot of people that he's really engaged with and committed to praying for. And um, yeah, he's he's got a big heart. Yeah, it's encouraging, isn't it? When Paul didn't have the technology that we have now, yet he is so engaged with all these different people and knows so much, is so involved in their lives. Yeah, I was just encouraged by the kind of sense of community you get from these verses, because some of these names we've heard before, um, Anesimus, um, Mark, maybe that's the same Mark that we've known of before, Um, Luke, the doctor, we certainly know who he is, and others, obviously Epaphras, who is already mentioned in this letter, and also Paul often mentions women in his letters as well. But I just love the sense of these are all people, men and women, who are working for the same cause, um, loving each other, supporting each other, being sent by each other to different places. And it's, I guess, like the, the church now should be, shouldn't it? Like we are all in on the same mission. We're all doing that, you know, even us who are far away. It's just a good reminder that, because of that interconnection, we should be praying for each other and we should be invested in each other. Um, it's something that I've loved doing this podcast with you guys. It makes me really feel like we're in this together. You can all cry. Helen, I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> She's got her onion ready. I think I think I might have felt an internal twinge in my heart. <laughs> Wow. A cold dead heart. something. Let's talk about it. Let's draw it out. <laughs> Let's fan it into flame. Yeah, verse 17 piqued my interest. Um, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Um, I don't know how you guys took that comment or that um, encouragement. I, it almost felt like a little bit of a rebuke to me, like almost like Archippus has become distracted by other things and that Paul's just saying, you know, keep it, this is what you were called to do. Keep your eyes on the prize um, keep focused. And it was interesting to me that um, it wasn't sent in a separate letter to Archippus or a separate note it wasn't given to um, Tychicus, who took the letter back to Colossae. It, it was written in a letter for everyone to read. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I know whisper, people shouldn't have... Should, I'm not saying that people should have said it behind his back. Um, it had to be said to him. 
but I yeah I just found that that made me feel quite uncomfortable I think (laughs) it's quite like poorly though isn't it I feel like didn't he publicly rebuke Peter didn't he um I don't I'm not saying that he shouldn't have done that but I guess it's quite he's usually quite open about these things isn't he um yeah and and I guess he is and the other thing is it's not like a you're being an idiot is it it's this is what you were called to look at this amazing thing you were called to focus on that don't focus on whatever distractions it is that are pulling Mm. you away from that Mm. and doesn't it make you want to read the letter from Laodicea like there must have been so many letters that we don't actually get to read I'd love to know what they all said um I wonder where they are now probably like dust I can actually tell you about that if you want (laughs) Oh my goodness, Hermione. <laughs> Please Go do, on. actually. I'm interested. Well, I'm genuinely. Misery. There's a couple. Okay, I'll just start this by saying there's a couple of lines of thoughts. One is that the letter to the Church of the Laodiceans is actually Ephesians, just saying that. But also, um, there, that there was actually a separate letter to the Laodiceans. There are There were mumblings that it was around until about 500 uh, AD. And then it disappeared. And then there is some thought that maybe it was around, but it was a load of rubbish. So it's not included. If it's been found, it's not been included specifically because nobody can say whether or not it's truly what Paul wrote. Or was he having a bad day that day? (laughs) Maybe it told us what he really thought of Archippus. Yeah. <laughs> no holes barred like there's a little hint here but this is the real truth <laughs> poor old Archippus is one mention in the bible do your job great <laughs> um let me just end on like a personal encouragement I think um because uh this is a potential risk to me being in chains. I feel like it's a great encouragement that Paul says, remember my chains and also just his prayer for us to be bold and to keep proclaiming our inheritance is in heaven and whatever is here is just temporary, isn't it? I hope that encourages you to be bold as it encourages me to be bold where uh, fears are real but 